Welcome to Life Rhythms Radio Show. I'm your host, DJ producer Ryan Skye. Life Rhythms is a radio show that revolves around my personal growth journey. As a songwriter and music producer, I spend a lot of my time observing the world around me, looking inward, trying to make sense of it all. I've been doing it in song form, and now I'm doing it in my radio show. The way the show works is each episode, we feature one song and one topic. The topic of today's episode, we're going to be talking about the stories of the mind, the power that they have on us, good and bad. And I've got a very special guest on today. His name is Gareth Emery. I'm a huge fan of Gareth's. He's got a, his fourth studio album is out right now called The Lasers. And we are featuring his song, You'll Be Okay, off of that album. Gareth wrote this song. We're going to talk about the inspiration behind it later, but it's it's a very personal song. He wrote a lot of the lyrics on the album, which is a departure. As a DJ producer, it's more of a collaborative effort. And what I love about having him on the show today is because Gareth talks about the stories that he was telling himself that was limiting him from writing lyrics, from from taking on projects and, and living the kind of life that that he wanted to live and, and being the kind of person he wanted to be. He, he had not considered himself a lyricist up until this point because he had stories in his mind that he was not a lyricist and he had to kind of challenge those stories and and it was a great experience for him to write on the album and kind of prove to himself that he is a great lyricist and you'll when you listen to the album the lasers you can hear that right away the songs they're emotional they're melodic they're heartfelt he very clearly has a talent for lyrics it's just he had to let go of the story he was telling himself that he could not write lyrics that's what we're going to be talking about today. It's very interesting to me. We A lot of times we don't realize how much storytelling plays a role in our lives, how, how many stories we tell ourselves throughout the day about who we are, where we've come from, what's happening to us. That's what we're going to be talking about today with Gareth because we can use them to our advantage. We can use stories to reframe our past, reframe the way we look at ourselves, to to kind of like envision a new future for us and, and, and become the best versions of ourselves, which is the goal at Life Rhythms. We're all about becoming the best humans we can. So we're going to take a short break. And when we get right back, we're going to dive into this interview with Gareth. I've got my manager and co-host, Scott Waldman, is going to be joining us. We're going to be talking about his album and, and really getting personal about the stories right when we get back from this short break. Welcome to Life Rhythms Radio Show. I'm your host, DJ producer, Ryan Skye. I have with me very special guest today, Gareth Emery. Hey, Gareth. How you doing? Good to be here. Excited to have you on the show today. I also have my co-host and manager, Scott Waldman. Hey, Scott. And I know you'll be okay. That's from uh, the, the new single, You'll Be Okay, off of Gareth's fourth studio album, The Lasers. And uh, you, you heard, we heard a little clip of this song coming into the segment, You'll Be Okay. I... First of all, I love the song, Gareth. Thank you. And um, what I, what's really cool to me about this album, this, so this is your fourth studio album, but it's the first album that you approached it kind of like a band would approach putting something out. You worked with one vocalist for the, the whole album, and you wrote and produced every song on the album. That's what I – is. That, that's – Yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's accurate. Um, and, you know, that's what I was you know, reading yeah, – yeah. Album, yeah, that's right. And the other albums are done were more 
classic dance music albums where I was the producer, but I didn't write the songs. I'd have somebody say, hey, I've got it, which is not everybody knows that's the way in electronic music things are normally done, right? The DJs right. don't tend to write the songs. Somebody goes, hey, I've got a song for you. And you go, right. And you, you make a instrumental around that song. Um, and for me, I started missing my days of playing in bands when I actually did this stuff. And I was like, man, I, I want to make an album like, like being in a band. So I had to get past some old like I, I told myself for a long time I couldn't write my own songs and um I had to push through a few sort of mental blocks but yeah we got we got there and we did it I, I love that you led with that um because I, I would love to talk today about the power of stories in the mind and I, I would say to the listeners you may not realize how many stories we tell ourselves throughout the day well actually I, I wrote a quote on the topic I always write a quote for each um, episode so I'll read the quote and then we can go from there stories. They have the power to free us. They can strengthen our identity for better or for worse. Stories can help us cope. They can help us heal, reframe the past and empower our future. But stories also have the potential to limit us. They can cause undue stress and worry. Our mind uses stories to keep a historical record, but the human mind is notoriously unreliable when it comes to facts and perceptions. And so while stories are powerful and can transform our human experience for the better, they can also be our worst enemy. Pay close attention to the stories that you tell yourself about who you are, what has happened to you in the past, what's happening to you right now, what might happen to you in the future, because it's all up for debate and interpretation. The human mind skews negative and stories can compound our suffering. But with the right, right awareness, we can use stories to change our inner narrative and lead a peaceful life that's both fulfilling and a source of happiness. I'd love to talk about that today, the power of stories. I love that you led with your relationship to writing lyrics and, and kind of how you had this story for a while that you were not a lyricist or a writer. And you yeah. kind of reframe that story in order to take on this new, this project. And then, and then I would love to hear, so what was your experience when you sat down and actually started writing these songs? Well, it, it, I was fortunate because it sort of happened by accident. Um, for, I, I'd tell myself my entire life, I didn't write lyrics. I'd never written lyrics in my entire life. And even back when I wrote all the songs for a band I used to be in, somebody else wrote the lyrics. We had a great poet in the band who, and that, and that, that was his job. And in dance music, nobody really challenged that. And nobody ever told me, hey, like, you should write lyrics. And I never said to myself, hey, I, I should write lyrics. So... so it became this 20-year story, and if some pretty crazy events hadn't happened in my life, it would have been a lifelong story. Um, and essentially, to cut a long story short, I parted ways with my long-term manager, who was a person who was excellent at finding me a lot of great songs. And when me and her parted ways, I was like, shit, like, where do I get great songs from now because she was always the person that said hey i found this great song i found this great top line for you it's how some of my biggest songs came about and realizing i didn't have her excellent a and r ear sort of in my corner i pretty soon realized unless i learned to write songs myself i was not going to have any good songs i booked a songwriting session with um emma hewitt who's a vocalist a good friend of mine and um, we, I wrote a melody for a song, and I was like, "Here's the melody," and I sort of played it to her. And she said, "Do you have any ideas for lyrics?" And I said, "Oh no, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't write lyrics." Um, and she went away that night. We had another session booked the next day, and I wrote down some lyrics and I sent them to her. And because this story was so 
powerful to me. I had to write, listen, I know these are terrible. I know there's no way you're going to want to use any of these lyrics. I had to completely apologize and say, but maybe it may just provide some frame of reference that you can attach to. And she wrote back and said, these are really good. They're, they're almost all the way there. Let's work on them tomorrow. And that was the first time I, I, I wrote lyrics. Wow. So, so as you're sending these lyrics, you kind of have the remnants of this old story that you're not a good writer. And so you're kind of warning her ahead of time, the lyrics aren't any good when actually, to your surprise, they, they were pretty good and they were actually pretty close to the end product. That, that must have been 80% the end product. Yeah. I was basically setting up these defense mechanisms as, as, as we humans like to do. And that if she'd written back, yeah, you're right. These are rubbish. Let me write something new. My ego would have been able to remain untouched. Whereas if I'd gone, I've written these lyrics, they're very personal to me. And then she didn't like them. That's a knock. So you're kind of anticipating the possibility of a, of a perceived rejection and you're kind of preparing yourself for it. So you don't feel it when you get this expected response that they're not very good. But then to your surprise, Actually, we're good. And, and then it's kind of gets you to, that's great because then it starts to reinforce the new story. I am a big proponent of like reprogramming the mind. And, and a lot of times, one thing I want to say is that what I found is it's, it's great to have new stories, but then also I found that you have to back them up with evidence. Like the mind is, yeah. So you may say, oh, I don't believe this story anymore that I'm, I'm not a good writer, but until you can give your mind some evidence, a proof that you actually can write lyrics and um, the mind is kind of, you know, like, uh, it's kind of stuck on in the past. So this was a good opportunity for you to, to reinforce the new story. The single that we were listening to on the way in, You'll Be Okay. I was reading about it, a Forbes, a Forbes article. Um, well, I'm reading about it in a Forbes article, and you said that you had written about the song was about when you were on board a plane that nearly crashed years ago. And um, and I have a quote here. You said, I gen genuinely thought that the plane was going down. I didn't have kids at that point, but I sent my wife a text basically saying, I think this plane is going down. If it does, just know I've had a full life, and it was my relationship with you that made it all worthwhile. Yeah, basically that, that she'll be okay. Yeah, and it was the song was sort of um, came from that incident and another emergency landing experience on board a plane. Essentially, taking the emotion from those two past incidents, but particularly "You'll Be Okay" is a song written off the basis of that one text message I sent my wife. And in the end, it became a more broader thing. It became something I could say to my kids. It became something that I think anybody could say to the people that are left behind when they're leaving this world and people have interpreted the song many different ways but yeah the song the song came from that one message i sent to my wife when i was on a private jet with the and the cabin was like filling with smoke <laughs> that anecdote though it really reminds me of when you see love actually you know how in the beginning they talked about when the planes hit the towers everyone was just calling and texting their loved ones and it was all positive yeah that's what that reminded me of. But I have just a very quick question because you'll be okay from the lasers, right? Yep. Is it called the lasers because you were laser focused? No. Um, so oh, man. <laughs> I was for periods of producing the album pretty laser focused. But no, the, the lasers is really um, – when I decided I wanted the album to be like a band – I would like, if I had a band these days, what would I call it? And I'm sort of known for having pretty big extravagant laser shows. And I was like, my band would be called The Lasers. That's what I would call the band. So I sort of named the album the name of the band. And, and you know, I, I may make a band out of The Lasers and have it be some spin-off to do sort of more, more band-like stuff. But um, yeah, that's where the name, the name of the album came from. <laughs> Ah, I make dad jokes. That was a real sincere question. And I got a hard <laughs> no, Dag Nabbit. 
yeah, <laughs> that, that's really interesting that you were writing that you write these songs based off of past experiences. So rather than writing about what's going on right now in your life, you took various moments from the past and you wrote about them. Was that therapeutic for you or what, what was the experience like with that? It's extremely therapeutic. Um, if I'd known how therapeutic it was, I would have been doing it longer. I probably would have saved myself some money from, from seeing, from seeing ah. therapists. But no, I, I think also I probably am in a better position to impart wisdom, if I can ever do that, with an incident that is somewhat in the rearview mirror. You know, often things are too emotional and too intense at the time they're happening, especially if it's an argument or like a breakup of some sort. And I've never been that good about writing things that are happening in that moment. Whereas once a little time has passed, I I think you can write about it with a clearer head. You can probably give a more um, wise message for for people reading it. And I I also feel as well, I, I like thinking back to how a place looked and like the, the and trying to remember like the visuals of it. And it's probably sometimes I'm writing about my recollection of it, which may not be exactly how it was, but I'm kind of fine with that. It's interesting how the more time that goes by, because they say you look through the past through rose colored glasses and uh, it's, it's a human, it's a, it's a, a mechanism of the brain to protect itself that the negative over time starts to fade away. And, and the more space that we have, we can, we can, we have more perspective on it. I love right. that idea of writing about something that you had have had some space to kind of let life happen since then, and you could kind of look back and and and, and look at the big picture with each song. Yes, if you'll be okay was written in the moment, it would be a much less philosophical. You know, the song is very much like I've had a good life. I've done a lot of great things. Sort of, um, you know, don't worry about it. Whereas if it was written in the moment, it would be more like wow, I fucking hate planes. Why did I take this plane? Like, I'm never taking a small plane again. Like, it would be ruining the mistakes that led me to be on that plane at that, at that moment in time. Yeah, just looking at the, some of the lyrics here, you say, I know the light could fade from my eyes. My plane could fall from the sky. The world could tell me this is my time. You and if know, I- never know, yeah. you never know when your time is. And, but I love the hopefulness of the song because you then you after that, you say, if I should die here tonight, darling- know that you saved my life. Aw. Aw. Yeah, usually I'm the one doing the awes. <laughs> Darling, you saved my life. It's I, I, I love that lyric. Right. You, you, it's, it's kind of, um, it's a bit of a twist, right? You have the, obviously, your life has not been saved in that moment because you're dead. However, your life up to this point was saved by another person and that is and that is essentially yeah the crux the crux of, of the song and I, I don't still have that text message i sent I'd, i don't remember how close mm. these words were to what i actually wrote but the sentiment was the same um it's interesting when i look at the the song if this had played out or, or say so you you have written this song for your wife now you have kids and then say you were to pass and, and then the music lives on it's it's almost as if you are giving them a story that they can take with them if, you know, if they were on earth longer than you are, it's like, this is a story that can kind of help them soothe themselves and, and to have um, peace knowing the, the impact that they've had on your life for the good. Exactly. And, and for a long time, I would have been scared to write about this sort of stuff. Cause I would have thought that by, and there's a lot of songs on the album about death. I don't know why I was, I was hung up on it, but for a long time, I would have thought that by writing about death, you were. Well, maybe because lasers kill people. <laughs> not, at a Gareth, not at a Gareth Emery show though we must <laughs> alright 
Yes, you were saying, um, what, what was that last part that you were saying? Yeah, like I, I probably for a long time wouldn't have written about death because I would have felt that by even ro- shining a light on it, it would make it more likely to happen. Oh, Whereas, I guess I realized in recent years that it's the one thing that's inevitable for all of us. So it certainly is going to happen um, to all of us at, at some point. So why not sort of stare down, you know, the barrel of the abyss and go, I'm going to live my life as much as possible, but whilst also not being afraid to talk about what will inevitably happen and leave behind something for um, sort of what comes after. And there's almost a bit of a accepting what is and, and embracing it that if this is, it's going to happen eventually. And and kind of like the more you can embrace it and turn it into art, um, like you had said earlier, it becomes therapeutic you're also creating something to leave for your loved ones and and it could be something that your fans can can and relate to and use utilize in their life maybe if they had a loved one that passed and or or they're in a romantic relationship it's very romantic the whole idea of this song that's that's why I wanted to feature it there's been a, a remarkable response to it from fans and even before I ever even said what the song was about because before I released the song I played it in my sets for good six months as I was like testing it and, and fine tuning it. And one, um, one uh, sort of big, big fan sent a uh, really long message about her dog who died. And she basically had said it was a super like sad message, but also very uplifting. And uh, basically saying that, you know, the night before she had to take her dog to be put down, they played this song over and over again as she had the last night, with with her dog and i was like and this was an unreleased song like she'd had to like you know find like a bit in a youtube to to, uh youtube video to play over and over again and it just like when i read that i'm like man this is like touching people and i i actually i sent her um a kind of like nice piece of artwork of her dog because there were like photos on on her instagram um and since the song's come out it's had a a lot of people have taken it in in a similar way was that surprising to you or were you, I mean, I've, anytime we put something out, we're hoping that people are going to relate to it. Um, and I imagine, because you had said, mentioned earlier that this was the first time or that you may not have written about this type of subject before. Yeah. Did you feel a little bit of nerves putting this out? Not quite sure how it would be received because it was kind of a vulnerable thing for you. First of all, you wrote all the lyrics. Yeah. Writing about something so personal. You're writing about a topic that is, is more serious, something that you've avoided in the past. And um, now you're putting this out into the world and and it's like the song belongs to the world now. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I try not to sort of, you know, overly. Oh, sorry, Mike. It just means you're popular. It's all good. Let's keep going. No, I'm popular with scammers. Why are the, let's put this on airplane mode. I don't know why, why the scammers are coming to my computer. Um, either way, it's not going to happen anymore. No, I, I think when it comes to putting the songs out, you never know if other people are going to see it the way you see it. And often they don't. I mean, that particular song, You'll Be Okay, I knew when I was making it, the song had a profound emotional impact on me. You know, when we wrote the song, um, I thought it was good. And then when Annabelle recorded the vocal for it, she just gave this wonderful emotion to it. You know, I felt, and like, I, I remember being in London after we recorded the song, I, every time I listened to it, I would be tearing up and having goosebumps. I, it was a very affecting, the song affected me a lot. And I remember telling myself, you've got to stop listening to this song because you're going to kill it before you've even produced the damn thing. So I knew it was powerful for me, but you can never second guess whether other people are going to experience the same emotions. And for me, the, my bit is making the art and putting out in the world. And generally, 
the stuff that is most powerful for me will usually also be the most powerful for the audience at large because you know they're they have similar tastes to me because they're you know supporters of my music but not always and you never quite know whether how it's going to go and how has your family received the music <laughs> well <laughs> my wife really enjoyed the song and I'd never told her what the lyrics were about. And I'd never told her it was about that moment when I thought my plane was going down and I, te- and I text her. And, and by the way, my, that incident would have been nowhere near as frightening for my wife as it was for me. Um, I was a nervous, anxious flyer and she's very relaxed and doesn't really have any form of anxiety or anything. So for her, she would have been like, oh, he's just freaking out. He's definitely fine. But she loved the song and I'd given her an, an early version to keep on her phone. And then she was on a plane flying from Miami to Los Angeles and she sent me a text of the chorus lyrics. If I should die here tonight, darling, no, you say. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? I'm like, oh my God, are you okay? Is the plane going down? And she goes, yeah, I'm fine. She goes, I just like the song. I said, when you get home, I'm going to need to tell you what this song is about. Oh, interesting. So she didn't know at that point. No, she didn't know what the song well, was you about. You never know. Let's say that she's on the ground. You never know how someone's going to interpret a lyric at all. It can mean something completely different to a different person. No, and, and, and you know, and I'm totally fine with that. And I think in many ways, I have my interpretation, but I don't ram that down people's throats. You know, obviously, like you know, it's interesting to talk about, and I'm, I'm more than willing to like share those stories. Um, but I don't kind of like you know go too heavily on what I wrote it about because what I love about songs is the moment you release them as as you kind of said they belong to the world rather than you and I love people finding their own different versions of lyrics and um, and sometimes people like they don't even know the right words and they have their own story which is based around a set of lyrics that are fundamentally incorrect and I, I like that too I think that's part of the beauty of it it's interesting being an artist putting out music writing about your life and and myself creating music doing the radio show kind of a weird experience to be writing about people around you putting it out there and it's still something that i i get like for instance um the the very first episode of this show that we had done in season one we were talking about attachment theory and the way that your experience as a as a child with your caregivers affects your your attachment styles and um so i was talking about aspects of my childhood that maybe weren't uh weren't ideal things that i had to deal with and then my mom listened to the episode and she's hearing me talk about my upbringing and and my parents and what my experience was with them and how it affected me negatively and she you know she's like i really you know i love the show and i'm happy you're doing this she's like i you know was a little disappointed in in that and i i yeah i told her that that wasn't the only time i was going to talk about her that there'd be you know over time a more other aspects of our relationship would come through but just in that moment it was about specifically that topic yeah. So, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a vulnerable thing. You're like, you're talking about personal issues or you're writing about them. And then you have people in your life interpreting the lyrics or hearing the music. Yeah. And, and lyrics are a bit easier because they can be interpreted in a multitude of different ways. I mean, I, I've also just written a book, a uh, sort of memoir about some, it's kind of, I, I took the, the, the sort of nine or 10 stories that were behind the songs on the album and showed and told those stories in like, in like longer form, which kind of became a memoir. And my dad has to read it. He's not come in for like a lot of blasting. Like my upbringing was, was, was pretty decent for the most part, but it is always a little bit awkward just telling these stories because I, I kind of think that, you know, people like us, we subscribe to being out in the public in some way when we take these jobs, that there's kind of a Faustian pact that we take. There's an upside and there's a downside. And I'm very comfortable with that, right? Like I have the up, many, many upsides, you know, I and many, many downsides. Like I, I can pick my phone up in the morning and see 
somebody saying I fucking suck before I do anything else. But Um, on the other hand, easier to get a table at a sold out restaurant. People like our family, they've not necessarily signed up for this. And I'm always a little sensitive about dragging sort of other people in my orbit into, into this stuff. The thing about lyrics, that, that is cool, that it's up for interpretation. You can be a little more, leave room for people to get what they would like out of it and to relate to it on their own terms. Exactly. But, you know, I've definitely dug into some stuff in the past that, you know, it, it's it's going to make slightly uncomfortable reading. But, then, you know, I'm also a believer that for the most part, things happen for us rather than to us. And there are certainly childhood experiences that shaped my life that weren't entirely normal but then like i also think there's nothing normal about wanting to be on a stage with thousands of people in front of you <laughs> like nobody wants to do that unless they're a little bit fucked up in some sort of way like normal people want to work nine to five and have a nice family and not have much stress you know you need a almost psychotic level of commitment to become successful in any kind of artistic field so you know probably some of the pain i've had was necessary to to get there i love this conversation where we're talking about the stories we're talking about your album the fourth studio album the lasers we're going to continue this conversation when we get back after this short break Welcome back to Life Rhythms Radio Show. I'm your host, Ryan Skye. I've got special guests with me today, Gareth Emery. Hey, Gareth. Hey, hey, Dan. My manager and co-host, Scott Waldman. Hey, Scott. Sing this song when I am gone. So sing this song when I'm gone, lyric for Gareth's new song, uh, single, You'll Be Okay, off of his fourth studio album, The Lasers, which we're featuring today. And topic-wise, we're talking about stories of the mind, the way that stories, the way that the stories that we have in our mind impact us. And something that's interesting to me is that a lot of stories in our mind, we kind of adopt from the people in our lives. We adopt from our society. Like as children, I notice you grow up and you kind of start out where you don't really know anything. And people are telling you stories about who you are, about where you live, about the state of the world. And it's, it's dependent upon the country you live in and the, and the part of the country you live in and your economic background. There's all these stories. And then we're told stories about, you know, um, into the future. If, if we go down path A, this is what's going to happen to you. And if you go down path B, that's what's going to happen to you. Something that I were, had to work through on myself was kind of navigating these stories and figuring out which ones were serving me and which ones were not. Because what I found is that, um, suffering is 10% of it is our circumstance and 90% of it is the stories that we tell ourselves about the situation. So a lot of the times the situation itself is not actually creating the suffering. It's the story you're telling you, telling about it, the meaning you're giving to the situation. That's what actually a lot of times creates suffering. And Gareth, I'm curious, when you look back at your career and maybe even in the beginnings of the career, young Gareth, just starting out, um, what kinds of stories were you experiencing back then, the ones that were serving you and not serving you? I think in the early days, there was a lot of negative stories that didn't serve me well. And even though I was having some level of, of career success, I definitely had it drilled into my head that I was lazy because as a child at school, I was told that a lot by my teachers. And um, I can be lazy at, at times. Um, <laughs> 
and I probably was in the early years of my career, and it took a lot of work to to get past that one. And, and like you said earlier, proving that that was not the case. But I had the story, as we said, that I couldn't write songs, that I couldn't write lyrics, and I I think also. Just when I grew up, I didn't grow up being told music was a career. I live in Los Angeles now, but growing up in a suburb of England, nobody ever said to me, you can be a famous musician. It's just very, very hard. You have to work, you know, obsessively for decades. It just was not on the radar of potential life outcomes. It was encouraged as a hobby, but that was as far as it went. The careers imagined for me by my family were the very best were doctors they're absolute gods in the eyes of my family and then sort of like lawyers and accountants typical jobs like working for the man and it took quite a lot of reprogramming to become comfortable with even being an an, an artist and realizing that was a a viable occupation how were you able to work through some of this pushback that you were receiving so you had these stories that you were lazy, that music wasn't an option. And yet here we are today, you've got your fourth studio album out. So you were able to work through that and kind of reframe what you were telling yourself. Where did that come from? Where did you, are you into personal growth or did you have a mentor or somebody that kind of lifted you up and, and maybe gave you the confidence you didn't have? Or did it come from experience? Well, b- back then I was not into personal growth and I did not have any mentors. And and to be honest, I wish I had, right? If If, if I had discovered... I didn't discover any personal development stuff till about five years ago. And if, if it changed my life greatly. If I discovered Tony Robbins at the age of 17 or 18, it would have been, it, I would have skipped a lot of shit that I had to learn firsthand. Um, but no, I, I had to get to the point of nearly losing it all. And I'd, I'd sort of given up my job and I got a record deal when I was 22 or 23. And um, three years later, I very nearly had to leave the industry. The hype had gone. Hype is very short. It's very fleeting. I've been unable to follow up my earlier sort of releases. And um, I was 26 years old. I most of my friends were in great normal jobs. I was like a full time musician, but I was probably making, you know, 10 grand a year. Um, Lived in my parents' house and everybody I spoke to was saying, you know what, like you're a wicked DJ, but you've been trying this thing for like three, four years, you know, you, it's not really working for you. Like it probably is time to, to get a real job. And and probably because music was never seen as a real career. That was also in my head. Like I also believe myself that there'd be a limit to this. And a one day I'd have to give in the dream and get a real job. And it's actually my dad, who's not really ever been much of a mentor who said to me, he goes, you know what? He said, you're just lazy. He said, there's nothing wrong with your career choice. He goes, you're just lazy and you don't want it enough. And um, I took that really badly at the time, but it was what I needed to hear. And um, that was kind of the moment it, it began to, to turn around, I think. That statement from your dad, there's 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 hope in it, but then there's also criticism at the same time. It's like hope that you could do it and it is possible, but then and then a little bit of like a little nudge of, move you know get moving is in there and it was delivered in a critical way i mean because that's who he is and i and i said like i it was at a dinner over the dinner table and i remember screaming back i work so hard i'm in front of the computer for 16 hours a day and he was like doing what he said you're on msn messenger to your mates he said you're you're sitting on message boards. He said, you're messing around on the internet he goes you're not trying he said you haven't given it your best and um that was really true. And, and and I kind of decided from that point, almost to sort of prove him wrong, I was like, you know what, I'm going to give this six months. And when it still isn't working, then I can say to him, ah, there you go, I'm trying, it still didn't work, fuck you. So, um, 
yeah so i said i'll give it six months and um i didn't have any gigs because nobody wanted to book me so uh, i had no professional engagements and i started a podcast back in 2006 i was very early in the game to do that and um that was kind of the first green shoots and i ended up doing that podcast for over 500 episodes in, in 10 years and um after 10 and yeah that it really turned things around but that laziness thing was was a hard one to hard one to rub out i love hearing that story uh, because when i look at my own experience the mind has the mind is always looking to confirm whatever the stories are present at the moment and so it it almost sounds like it, at the time if you had a story that music is not really an option it's probably not going to work out it's all subconscious stuff the the subconscious mind is going to do things that are going to confirm those stories so so um you kind of self sabotage your own progress and and by doing these sort of self sabotaging behaviors your mind is confirming what your stories are. And it's this, I only realized this over the past maybe year or two, that the mind is not designed to make us happy. It's only designed to keep us safe and to confirm whatever is going on in there. So the mind is fine if you're suffering. The mind is fine if you're unhappy, as long as you're safe. If it thinks it's keeping you safe, if it thinks that, and, and, and a lot of times it will do that by looking for evidence to confirm whatever it is going on in the mind. But your dad threw a fork in there and he, and he was able to kind of like, you were able to start changing your story that it is possible. And I am going to prove my dad wrong. And my dad said, I can do it. I just need to take action, different actions. Exactly. And it really started from there. And that led me on a journey of actually understanding what, what hard work was. And it really was a pivotal changing point in my life. I started my podcast. I started getting a few gigs again. I met a girlfriend uh, who is now my wife that same year, 2006. And and again, we talk about stories. So when my career first started, I made one record. It got me a really good deal. It got me into music full-time. It got me out of my job. But that record was a little bit lucky. And I'd lucked out making it, and I was not able to follow it up. So for four years after making that song, I could not beat it. And for four years, every time I read what people were saying about me online, it was like, Mistral is a one-hit wonder. He'll never beat that track. And those stories managed to kind of get their way into my own head. And I believed I was a one-hit wonder. I had lucked out. That was the best thing I was ever going to do, which I'd written in 2002. And that was the end. And um, the when I finally did something, not even the beat that track, but the equaled it, just burying the ghost of that old track, man, that was that was good. And now I've beaten it many, many times over, 30 or 40 times over. But those are powerful stories that other people said about me and I and I took them on and believed them. In addition to calling them stories, we can also call them beliefs, like be- limiting beliefs. Um, because the beliefs that we have, they lead to our thoughts. And then the thoughts trigger emotions and the emotions trigger action. Or in your case, in the, be- in the beginning of your career, inaction if, if you're... But then as soon as we start changing our beliefs and our stories, then our thoughts change. And then the thoughts, again, they lead to emotions and, and lead to actions. And then you find yourself writing more hit songs and you find yourself working harder and maybe getting up earlier and working longer days and, and kind of continuing to, to expand the possibility of, of what you could achieve. Yeah. It, it, and it's even now I find it very, very difficult to believe the things that I still want to accomplish. And it, it, it's always been a challenge for me. I've always seen 
the next step as being very, very hard to get to until you do it. And then you can then repeat it and you can do it many, many times over. And, you know, I, I like visualization, like visual, visualizing your goals and stuff, because that at least puts you a little bit in the right direction. And you're probably going to make some actions towards, towards those goals. But even like when I think about things I haven't done yet, right? Like I want to turn the lasers into a band. I want to play the main stage of the Glastonbury Festival and stuff. And um, these are still hard things for me to believe, despite the fact of coming so far to, you know, to get to get to this point. When these ideas come into your head, is, is there a tendency to kind of shoot them down right away that they're not? Yeah, that- I'll find any any excuse, any excuse for it. Um, as we, we 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 can always find. That's how my brain naturally works. On a personal note, your upbringing with your parents were, was there a critical? Was it kind of like a critical form of parenting? Because the reason I ask is is something I've been learning as I've been studying the mind and um, the reprogramming stuff is that the way we talk to ourselves in our heads tends to mimic the way our parents talk to us. So it's, it tends to be the voice of our parents. Like we talk to ourselves in the same ways that our parents talked to us growing up. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, probably from my mother's side, not so much critical, but very high expectations, um, which didn't always align with what I wanted to do. So obviously like I underperformed in, in them. So for instance, you know, playing in bands was not something my parents were particularly interested in. Um, they wanted me doing classical music recitals and stuff like that. So I kind of like went along with that stuff. So to be a good kid, despite the fact I didn't really enjoy it and um, probably like failing in those things and not getting great marks on my classical piano music exams and stuff has probably had some long-term consequences, um, which is, and I, you know, all we do with our own kids is we try and do a better job if we can. So like, you know, for my kids, I don't really try and push them towards anything they're not super excited about. You know, kids are enthusiastic about enough different things. And I'm like, yeah, you, you don't want to draw? All right, let's go kick a football around the garden. You don't do that? Like, let's find what you're enthusiastic about and double down on that because there's, there's enough things out there. How old are your kids? Uh, three and five. So they're very much in the kind of trying loads of things, sort of explore, exploratory um, sort, of, sort of part of life. So yeah, you know, I try and like, I try and pick the things that I wish were different about my own childhood and, and apply that a bit with my kids. But I also like, I'm sure I'm going to fuck up in some ways as well, because, you know, that's, we're humans and uh, we just do, do, do the best we can. Yeah, there's, I, I don't have any kids, but there's no perfect way to raise anyone. And and even when I look at my life and, and experiences that I've had that could be considered, I've also find like, we don't really know what's good and bad for us. No. Situations that happen that seem to be like the worst thing that could ever happen to you. And then years later, you look back and you're like, wow, that was the best thing that ever happened to me because of what the change that it, the way it impacted my life and what it led to. And so I, like me personally, I try to just accept things as they come and to try to not label them as good or bad for me because I, I really don't know the well, impact. I think, yeah, I, I think there's also, when it comes to parenting, a pretty fundamental, like a philosophical question. I don't know, I don't know the answer to this, but I have thought about it. I think we can kind of all, ex- like, we can all agree if you have a parent that never sees their kids, they work 24-7, you know, that's probably not particularly good parenting. However, I'm also not sure the parent that just lavishes their kids and keeps them super happy all the time and they never have any hardship is also the best parent because those kids probably do grow up happy and well-adjusted, but without a great willingness to do much in the world. And I think there is a certain sort of combination of attention, 
but also something giving you that drive to do something. I mean, I mean, you'll know you've interviewed many, many people. Most people I know who grew up who grew up like super well-adjusted adults did not have a great did not have a great drive to go and do crazy things with their lives, did not want to go and be on stage or make art or invent the next fucking scientific discovery. Like most people who became super well adjusted were just pretty happy, like doing their thing. And um, I don't know, like, is, is that, is that the target? Hard, it's hard, hard to say. It is hard to say. There's a, a duality to our world. I mentioned this in our last episode about duality of life and, and kind of like, if you did have a, a difficult upbringing, the flip side is that is the positive effect it could have on on your drive and your ambition and 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 where that could lead you. And as you had said, if if somebody is well adjusted, maybe they live a comfortable life, but maybe they're they're not pushing the boundaries and exploring and creating as much as they would if if mom and dad weren't home all the time. And, and do and I think like do we have as human beings? Um, are we supposed to be furthering the human race? And I think we, we probably are. Because when you play that situation out and say you say you just give up work, all you do is stay at home, you're the best parent, on paper, the best parent ever, and your kids grow up super well-adjusted, they don't want to do crazy shit like play on stage at Glastonbury because they're well-adjusted and they haven't got the neurosis and the chips on the shoulder that send people to the main stage of major festivals. So they grow up and they also become super well-adjusted and then they have kids and their kids do the same and they're super well adjusted and that's great you have this line of very happy human beings but that are not likely doing anything to further our species in terms of the art we make or the things we discover so like yes you're all very happy but why but like why are you here now on the other hand I also think it's very sad when you get a great artist or a great scientist that are terribly unhappy I hope there's a middle ground in there somewhere we need the well-adjusted and we need the the struggling artists to create the music and push the boundaries. Exactly. I, I think I you never want to push somebody too far either way. So I try and like, if my kids want to be well-adjusted and not, not do much else, I'm totally fucking cool with that. Um, but also if they do want to be artists, I hopefully can guide them in a way that they can do that whilst also maximizing their happiness along the way. Because, you know, trying to do great things does not, immediate does not necessarily lead to happiness it's, it's a hard road for our listeners that are thinking about maybe maybe you had a, a difficult childhood yourself i want to bring up this concept that i i mentioned eckhart tolle in almost every episode we were even talking the other day on the phone call maybe we're trying to get him to sponsor the show because i mentioned him i'm a huge eckhart tolle fan he's a author spiritual teacher wrote the power of now um but he has this concept that i think is really interesting that i wanted to bring on up on the show and it's called he has this concept of the little me um, so if the big me would be kind of like, um, how we're all connected, the energy that flows through all of us, kind of the big picture, the, the consciousness or God, if you're religious, that's kind of like the big me. The little me is our own individual, like our ego, our individual story. And his concept of the little me is very interesting to me. It's like, we all have this little me, which is basically, it's, it's just mental thought patterns and, and stories basically of, of who the mind, thinks it is like the identity that the mind has. And we have this, the little me basically has these stories of like where I came from, what my experience was growing up. And these stories, we can carry them for decades of like, Oh, I grew up in a difficult household and, and poor me, this was my experience growing up and it was so difficult. And, and, and now like, I'll never find love again. And I can't do this. I can't do that. And I'm lazy. And so we kind of like start forming an identity around this little me. His, his teaching is, is to kind of like move past the little me and to expect, and to accept that 
just because we have thoughts and stories doesn't mean that that's reality. And uh, when I was doing research for the show, um, I came across, it was really interesting to me, Deepak, Deepak Chopra. Um, I, I came across, he, he talks about how we have 60,000 thoughts, 60 to 80,000 thoughts a day. And of those thoughts, 80% are negative and 95% of them tend to be the same thoughts, repetitive thoughts. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to me that if we have this story, we're constantly re reaffirming it. And it's almost like when you buy a new car, you buy a blue Toyota, and then all of a sudden now you've seen the blue Toyota everywhere. The same thing happens with the stories we tell ourselves. If you have a story that you're lazy, the mind throughout the day is going to be looking for evidence to prove that you're lazy. And the only way to change that story is first, you have to consciously decide to change a story. And then number two, you've got to give your mind evidence. That's something I want to bring up to our listeners. If they had a difficult upbringing and they have these stories going around in their mind, the first step is to, to try to, to kind of question, like, is that really reality? And then this, and then the next step is to then look for evidence to, to reinforce that story. And then over time, that story gets stronger and the other ones kind of atrophy away in your mind. Yeah. And you don't, and you need to make surprisingly few changes in order to see really positive results. You know, like we all know that one person who's just a victim, right? Everything is against them. They got broken up with their ex-girlfriend or, or whatever, and their life's been rubbish ever since. They're always unlucky. But then we also probably know that person who's like perpetual glass half half full, who's always can see the positive, just automatically sunny disposition. And most of us are somewhere in the middle. But with a few of these techniques you mentioned, um, you only need to move yourself a few percentage points away from the victim type mentality and towards the glass half full person to start seeing some real changes in your life and happiness. It doesn't take that much. You had mentioned that in the past few years is when you recently discovered personal growth. Are these yeah. the kinds of things that you're exploring or what, what kind of teachings or, or um, is, is there, I'm curious, like what, what's been your process? I, I love talking about this stuff on the show. Uh, I mean, meditation has probably been the one most important one for me, mainly because it's given me having some sort of uh, like meditation does not in itself solve problems. And I don't even always feel much better after I've done it, but it, training your mind makes you much better at spotting what is going on in your mind. So like after three or four years of good meditation, I'm just much more able to spot these negative stories when they start and, and often just by seeing them and going, aha, you're slipping into that old pattern again, that sort of removes its power. The other one I really like, I don't do this often as often as I should, is just a visualization, just seeing and vividly imagining something you want to happen. And most of us do this unconsciously anyway. We decide we want a particular new car. We start thinking about it a lot. And that does have a way often of bringing that new car into our lives. And um, those two, I think, combined together remarkably, remarkably, have been remarkably powerful for me. When you do your visualization, are you sitting down and closing your eyes and, and dedicating a few minutes to playing scenarios out in your mind? Or how does that work for you? Visually? Yeah, it's. I, I mean, I will use the Tony Robbins version of closing your eyes and vividly imagining something like you've already done it, which does seem to remove because like once you've already done something, doing it again is much easier. At least it is for me. Vividly imagining something you can almost trick your brain that you've done it. So then even though you're doing it for the first time, um, you sort of like you've tricked some subconscious bit of your mind that you're actually just just repeating it. And uh, it's it's not always easy to do. It's not always easy to get myself to do it. But um, it's certainly it's certainly as powerful. I love that 
idea of tricking the mind. I've read studies that they they have shown that the mind cannot differentiate the difference between when you're visualizing something happening and it actually happening. The mind will respond in the same way to both situations. And so that's why as the visualization, I, I love the idea of visualizing because as you had said, it's much easier for the mind to, to repeat than to do something for the first time. And if you're visualizing it, the mind will automatically start to respond to the visuals, to the visuals as if it's actually happening. Exactly. Um, so for me, yeah, I have my, my, at the moment I'll be visualizing winning a Grammy award. I haven't done that. I would like to. And being on the main stage of the Glastonbury Festival with my the Lasers band. Now, these things, by the way, because my conscious mind goes, these are ridiculous. They're really hard things to do. You're never going to see them. And then I like remind myself that, like, you know, I've already ticked off a lot of stuff I wanted to do via this exact method. But the new stuff always seems harder, which is why the visualization is important, because otherwise my conscious brain will just talk myself out of, out of this stuff. And that's the evidence playing out for you. That's that's you recognizing the mind kind of being playing devil's advocate and saying you can't do it. And then you're countering it with evidence that you can do it. And you're reminding your mind, no, 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 I've done this and I've done that and I did that. And this worked in all those situations. So therefore, it could likely work in this situation. It's like the evidence playing out. I love that. Yeah, like I, I have to, like I have to, we automatically take for granted what we currently have. And I have to vividly remind myself, like I did not come from the suburbs of Southampton, England, making music in my bedroom at my parents' house, like in like a tiny little box room, to having a beautiful house in Los Angeles with a swimming pool and, and like an awesome career by accident. And it wasn't handed to me. Like it was a process of visualizing things that I didn't think I could do and eventually doing them. Um, and I have, to, I have to remind myself of that because otherwise you just take what you've already done for granted. That's what I love about this show is I, I love to be able to have guests on like you and to hear the story, your story of what you've done with your life, it really is extraordinary where you started and where you are now. And it's inspiring. Thank you. Hopefully there's people, um, it, it does some good. These techniques do good for people listening. Scott, I'm curious your thoughts on this. I mean, I know nothing about meditation just because every time I've done it, I hated it. But I'm all for if people do it and they can center themselves and feel good. I find myself being exponentially more anxious during meditation and, and that can absolutely happen right and, and by the way i'm not saying meditation is for everybody because i'm not like a meditation like i'm not in the business of like of, of, of like selling meditation no, but it works for you well yeah, i i often do find though like anxieties do come out during a meditation session and um that's pretty common um to find thoughts that are not particularly pleasant come out and and part of the power of it at least for me is staring down those thoughts and i can't hide from them because in meditation there is nowhere to hide from your mind you can't distract i can't pick up my phone i can't go and eat a bit of chocolate you know all the things you'd normally do to distract yourself and not available so i have to sit there and stare down these horrible anxieties but often having confronted them in the meditation session sort of removes their power from my day-to-day -day life when they when they sort of rear their heads in, in other settings if people are not anxious at all, like, and the only time it's ever happening is during meditation, that's probably not good. But I am prone to anxiety anyway. And being able to face those fears in like a meditation setting was, was, has just kind of been helpful. I've tried it a few times. I, I tried an app. I tried in person. It, it just didn't work for me. But like, I find 
there are just hours in the day where I'm more anxious than others and circumstantially. And like you said, if someone's not anxious every time they're outside of meditation, that's another issue because how can you not have anxiety issues at some point? The thing, the thing of meditation, it's, it's not supposed to remove anxiety. Um, but what it will do is, and what, one of the techniques you learn is called noting. And all noting is, is you, when you see a thought, you note it. And so for me, experiencing a lot of anxiety in a meditation, every time my mind goes to an anxious place, I go, ah, anxiety. And the moment you spot it and you shine a light on it, it immediately sort of loses it, its power. And um, in a meditation practice, you'll do that hundreds, thousands of times. You see something, you note it, done. But what that means is, I, I'm prone to anxiety in my normal life. Let's just say, for instance, my wife is gone to the shops and she's 30 minutes. She should have been home. She's not home. My anxious brain five years ago could go down a horrible kind of route of like, oh my God, she's been in a car crash. And like within like, you know, a oh, minute later, you know, you, yeah, you just play- all these routes like, oh my God, this person isn't here. Um, They were murdered. Right. And I can go down rabbit holes very, very quickly. And within like a minute, I can suddenly, how am I going to tell her parents this horrible murder has happened or whatever? Like my, the brain can be very, very destructive. And all what meditation has been helpful is now the moment the rabbit hole begins, rather than sort of unconsciously going down it, I can kind of see it more often than not and go, ah, anxiety. There, there's a, a a bit of a healthy detachment that happens when you start meditating and doing the noting. Once you're able to say, ah, that's anxiety happening, you're kind of detaching from it and you're not identifying with the thoughts anymore. You're kind of able to step back and be like, okay, just because I'm having an anxious thought, A, doesn't mean this is whatever I'm thinking is actually going to happen. And B, if I'm able to look at the thought, then that also means that I am not the thought. Like if I have a remote control in my hand and I'm looking at the remote, I'm not the remote because I'm looking at the remote. So it's kind of like you're able to step back and have this little bit of a detachment. And, and as you had said, Gareth, that it doesn't, it do, you're not like being dragged around all day by these unconscious thought patterns. Yeah, I've actually never heard it said that way. And that's really interesting by saying that just by the fact that you can observe it, observe it, it's clearly something separate to you. So you break this thing where like we are the thoughts. And I've not thought of it that way, but it that absolutely is, a, is, an, is an effect as well. Amazing. Well, we are coming to the end of the the final segment. Um, so we're going to wrap this up, but it was such a pleasure having you on today. Really great chat. Super fun. You've made, made me want to go and meditate now. Do my second one of the day. The song, You'll Be Okay. That's what we've been featuring today by Gareth. It's on his fourth studio album, The Lasers. I encourage listeners, check it out. It's an awesome album. It's personal. Gareth wrote and produced it. Thank you so much. I will say one very quick thing. I, I did have an amazing co-writer that helped me on a lot of these songs, Anthony Galatis. Um, I just don't want him to see this interview and think I've kind of uh, conspired to cut him out of the storyline. He's amazing and helped me a lot on the album. But um, yeah, I, I always feel like I want to give my people behind the scene a shout out when I get a chance. But this has been such an awesome interview and um, yeah, yeah, really, really inspirational stuff. Well, cool. thanks for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Ryan. Cheers.